Hi, listeners. I wanted to take a brief moment of your time for a point of personal privilege. After a two-year battle with breast cancer, my dear mother, Mia Nilet Mitchell, passed away earlier this month on March 5, 2023. And while I could do a whole episode on the greatness of my mother and how she shaped me into the man I am today, I won't. Instead, I want to take just a moment to remember her and all the other mothers and mother figures out there as we close out Women's History Month by reading Everything Mom by Joanna Fuchs. How did you find the energy, Mom, to do all the things you did, to be a teacher, nurse, and counselor to me when I was a kid? How did you do it all, Mom, be a chauffeur, cook, and friend, yet find time to be a playmate? I just can't comprehend. I see now that it was love, Mom, that made you come whenever I'd call. Your inexhaustible love, Mom, and I thank you for it all. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Pavocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Pavocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepavocate.com and check out our social media pages. This episode is the second part of the series, What is Academic Freedom? In the first part, which aired on March 1st, I spoke with Dean Sasha Coupe, Associate Dean of Mission Innovation with Loyola Chicago School of Law. In the second part, I speak with Zach Greenberg, Senior Program Manager for the Foundation of Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE for short. In the end of my interview, you will hear Mr. Greenberg say that he appreciates me hearing both sides of the issue, and I must say that if Dean Coupe and Mr. Greenberg truly represent both sides of the issue, then the spectrum of disagreement on this issue is rather narrow and nuanced, which, in our general climate, I must say is a breath of fresh air. Now, I certainly recognize perhaps there are perspectives we might be missing, I will leave it up to you to determine if we have truly come to understand what academic freedom is through this series. And then let us know if you agree or disagree how it was defined. Enjoy. And so we'll start just sort of with introducing who you are. I always like to start there with any episode that I do. So introduce everyone to you. Sure thing. I'm Zach Greenberg. I am a senior program officer at FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Uh, we are a nonpartisan nonprofit that defends free speech uh, nationwide, with a particular focus on college campuses. Uh, specifically, I work with students and professors engaging in direct advocacy on their behalf to defend their, their free speech, academic freedom, and due process rights on campus. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And uh, so how long have you been with FIRE? I've been with FIRE for almost seven years, not counting the internship I did when I was in law school. So it's the best job I've ever had. It's my first job after law school, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah. Did you um, learn about the organization through law school, or did you already know about it through undergrad? Or Yeah, well, when I was an undergrad, um, way back when, 2010 or so, there wasn't really that many groups out there that really defended um, free speech in a nonpartisan manner. Yeah. Um, and fire was really the only one, uh, that was, that was very unwavering in their, in their principled defense of this, that no matter 
what you say, left, right, Democrat, Republican, all across the political spectrum, um, they will defend your rights on campus as long as it's protected by free speech in the First Amendment. So I went to their student conference and I later interned for them in law school and they hired me um, as a research fellow at a law school. And then I became um, a program officer for their campus rights advocacy team, um, where we're engaged mostly in campus work, investigate cases, intervene. Um, I've been doing that for the last around four years or so. Okay, that is excellent. If I may ask, what got you interested in in sort of the area of free speech very specifically? Yeah, sure thing. Um, First Amendment attorneys are like Batman villains. We'll have our origin story of like how we got into free speech. Right. Um, usually has to do with like adult entertainment or journalism or some sort of incident. Um, for me, I was just a freshman on campus and I was looking at across the quad and I saw this this Christian fundamentalist preacher mm. um, talking about the sins of homosexuality and drug use, premarital sex, all really unpopular viewpoints on a predominantly liberal college campus. And they were calls by this public university, SUNY Binghamton, to expel this person. And I realized that, you know, that could be me. That could be anybody out there saying anything remotely controversial. And I wrote this op-ed. I researched this the, the issue of free speech and what it means to defend someone that you disagree with that's really unpopular and really offensive. And it kind of got me into the, the theory behind it and the principle and that inspired me to go to law school and study the First Amendment at Syracuse. Yeah. Um, and that kind of uh, really kind of, kind of put me on the track to, to make this into a career. Oh, that is that's very cool. And uh, and I promise it won't be all, like, all about you or the organization. Oh, totally cool. Could you walk <laughs> us through or just tell us a little bit about FIRE? So how did it start? Why did it start? Because I'm sure there's an origin story there as well. There is. There is. It started in uh, around 1999. This attorney and this, this professor um, were researching the issue of college campuses, and they wrote The Shadow University, which is a book that kind of details the, the malfeasance and just kind of the abuse that colleges um, kind of use to treat their students. And upon writing the book, they received like dozens of calls for help saying, hey, you know, I my rights been violated by this university. Please help me. Mm-hmm. So they established this organization. Back then, it was the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Um, same acronym, but Education of Expression. Um, the focus really on just publicizing and addressing rights abuses in college campuses, particular focus on free speech. And they they grew it into this, this large, or I guess this medium-sized nonprofit. It was around maybe 20 employees when I started in 2016. Um, you know, just a small band of happy warriors, just, you know, fighting every single university across America, um, yeah. you know, big and small. And we recently expanded our mission around a year and a half ago to focus on um, off-campus, all-Americans, free speech. And with this expansion, we expanded our fundraising, expanded our budget, and we have over 100 employees now. And the goal is to become the the voice of the First Amendment, the PR firm for free speech, kind of educating people and showing them that free speech is valuable, it's important, and we should fight to defend it. Right. What makes you all different uh, than, say, the ACLU? Yeah, well, I should say, first of all, that we partner with ACLU in a bunch of cases. You know, right. we have a lot of overlap in our, depart- in our departments. Yeah. Um, and we're on the same side for defending free speech on college campuses. And the ACLU also, um, you know, they are nonpartisan per their mission statement. So I'd say we're very similar in that regard. Fire's real, I guess, calling card is um, an unapologetic defense of free speech that we're not going to we're not going to apologize, not going to make excuses for a speech that may be offensive or controversial or annoying. Um, we're going to come out there and say first thing is it's protected it's free speech. People should be allowed to say it. And that's it. 
I guess the biggest difference is the ACLU has a lot of different departments. They have a department about racial justice, for example, and transgender rights and, you know, privacy. And they have like a, a lot of different factors that they evaluate to determine whether they want to take a case. And for fire, we have one department, the free speech department. If it's free speech, we'll take the case. We'll defend your rights. Um, no questions asked. Gotcha. Oh, fair enough. Uh, so jumping into then talking about academic freedom, as someone who sort of works in, in the space of, of free speech uh, full time, just very plainly, what is academic freedom? Sure. Uh, academic freedom has a couple different definitions. Um, we focus mostly on professors. So it, it is a professor's right to teach, research and debate um, without in, without institutional or extramural censorship or interference. Um, so it protects the, the professor's right to kind of do his job, uh, fulfill the job responsibilities without being censored or punished by the institution, the university, or by an outside actor like a, a legislature or the police. And it's really important to allow universities to to teach students the full array of ideas um, to explore um, the widest array of, of viewpoints out there by giving professors academic freedom. Um, institutions also have academic freedom. A university has the right to determine who may teach, what may be taught, who may be to study. Um, they have the right to determine their curriculum um, with input from the professors, for example. Um, and then individuals, students would have their free speech rights, the right to inquire um, about you know, controversial subjects, to debate, to learn, um, to really their personalized right um, to explore the widest range of viewpoints on their college campuses, kind of concordant with the professor's right to teach those viewpoints. Yeah, that's fair. And I guess naturally then, being that sort of there are three different interested parties, how how does one find the balance in in academic freedom, but in respecting the academic freedom of all three players there when all three players are sort of converge um, and there's there's a tension there. So how does how is that balance found? Yeah, it's definitely a really good question. Um, we see the conflict mostly being in play between the university and the professor. Yeah. Um, you know, we see there's a lot of tension between, um, or I guess uh, for the category of what may be taught um, you know, what is the curriculum, what students are allowed to learn, what is the teachers, you know, their syllabus and kind of their, um, their academic expertise. And it's predominantly a decision of the professor because they are the academic, they're the experts here, they're the subject matter, um, you know, authority, um, university, the administration, they are allowed to ensure that the professors are competent within the bounds of academic discourse. So if you have math professor teaching two plus two equals five or the earth is flat obviously they can evolve with that right. um, but in terms of the, the doctrine itself it's usually a a a problem to the professors um and their right to determine their curriculum and you know what what they want to teach um with students it's really just a matter of being able to um you know have your own free speech rights um when professors for example limit discussion in class or punish students for their political views or or force students to to or compel them to adhere to viewpoints they don't believe in, um, that could be an issue where there's some conflict there between the teacher and the student. But mostly, it's between um, the university, the administration, and the student and the professor. Yeah, no, that is that is fair. And I guess in you all in your approach to academic freedom and free speech, where 
are the bounds, right? So I think as society, we have already generally decided yeah, free speech is one of our, our most highly protected rights, but we do recognize there, there are bounds. But where do you all sort of find those bounds and, and, and define those bounds as you're in court or working with clients or... Yeah, thanks for asking that question. There's, you know, free speech is not an unlimited right. There, there are definitely um, narrow categories of unprotected speech that can be punished by the government, by the institutions, universities. Um, a common thing we see is, uh, well, not super common, but I guess in our work, we see uh, true threats, um, a serious intent to commit unlawful violence. It's, it's, a, it's a very high standard. Um, it has to be serious, has to be immediate. Um, students can't um, threaten one another in a serious manner. Um, but of course, if the students are joking, if it's a parody, um, we had a case at the University of Utah where a student threatened to um, detonate the nuclear reactor on campus if the football team lost the game. And very clearly a joke, very clearly, um, you know, a, a parody. You can't deem that a nuclear reactor. It's like a microwave. It kind of sits there. It's not, not a nuclear bomb. Right. And she was arrested for that and she was prosecuted. And we explained to the university, to the police that, look, this is a joke. This is not a threat. Right. Um, it's, and if it's not a threat, it's protected free speech. The presumption is that it's protected. You have yeah. to kind of get over that to, to punish students. You have harassment, um, severe, pervasive offensive conduct uh like a, a series of unwanted touching for example right. that would be a, a um another exception of course you have the traditional ones like obscenity child pornography stuff like that right. um so our our analysis of fire is to, to to really understand what the speech is at issue what is being said what's the expression and then figure out is this protected or does it fall into one of these punishable categories and if it's illegal if it's unlawful you know we can't take the case um, but if it is protected, then you know we will advocate for their behalf. Yeah, no, that is fair. I'm going to ask you, a, a, I guess, a hypothetical. We're well, I was like, we're lawyers. I'm not a lawyer. You're a lawyer. Yeah. We're uh, lawyers here. We can talk about it. <laughs> right. And many of our listeners are lawyers um, or future lawyers. So, again, being that I'm a student and and my interaction with academic freedom. Uh, has come in, in two flavors. I was in undergrad. I sat on the tenure, the university tenure and promotions committee. So I only in undergrad, I never heard the term academic freedom other than within sort of the, the work I was doing on that committee. Right. Uh, and then I get to law school and I heard academic freedom a lot more. And again, as a student, from my perspective, it's as a, as a shield for objectionable or problematic behavior or, um, you know, uh, somebody says something in class and it's like, well, academic freedom. And so it's almost used as a, a protection against sort of all. If someone's in class, a professor teaching and say they're teaching, a, 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 the case may not be controversial, but the subject matter or the way that the case itself talks about um, like Native Americans, for example, in uh, Johnson v. McIntyre um, yeah. or w any number of cases. And the case law or, you know, the case, the case itself might use what we now it's an outdated term, et cetera, et cetera. But the professor might read the term or continuously use the term that we know in our modern time is now offensive and not something we use. And is that something that is then protected by academic freedom and or does it infringe upon the student's ability to, to learn if they feel like they're in some way being assaulted by the continuous use of of a racial epithet, for example. Yeah, yeah, and you raise a couple of really good points, and I have a, a couple of good points to yeah. um, just to kind of answer that question. Yeah. Um, first is that you're right, and that academic freedom does protect 
um, a wide array of expression that many people, even everybody, may view as offensive and inflammatory and hateful. For mm-hmm. uh, example, you raise, and we see a lot, is the use of the N-word yeah. um, when it comes to teaching. And many works of American literature use the N-word. Huckleberry Finn, for example, is a pretty famous right. example of that. Right. Um, and so teachers, the professors who are teaching this material um, use the word, um, not in a derogatory sense, perhaps just quoting literature, for example, and just quoting you know, what the author said, and they'll get in trouble, they'll get punished, they'll get fired um, for their speech. Right. And so I think the the first thing to really, the first principle to remember here is that um, you know, it, it, academic print does allow professors to use this language and to teach kinds of material, um, even if it is offensive to students. And there's a, there's a fine line here between, you know, directing a racial slur at a student to humiliate them and to, and to, 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 to degrade them and to harass them and using the, this inflammatory language to um, teach a point, to make a point about hate speech, for example, or to, to quote literature, to give students the actual text of what they're learning. Yeah. And, and if it is a the legal term, we call it a pedagogical interest. There's a pedagogical interest here related to their teaching and their research um, to protect under academic freedom. But the more interesting question is why? Like, why is that, right? As the law says, but like, why do we protect it? And um, courts have said, and science, social science has backed this up, that um, just teaching students to engage in offensive speech is an incredibly important skill. And allowing, allowing students to, um, you know, read the course material and kind of come up with their own views about um, what this means and, and you know, and, and why this is important is the value of an education. That's why students go to school is to, to develop their facilities and to really, um, you know, become citizens. That requires them to deal with um, a wide array of speech that may make them uncomfortable and right. may make them um, unsettled. And when it comes to economic freedom for and First Amendment for offensive speech, we always advocate for a more speech approach. So instead of punishing the professor, censoring the work, um, you know, blurting out the words that we say, we advocate for more speech, more dialogue, more debate, engage with it, explain why it's offensive, um, have a discussion about what this means and how you're feeling and kind of have everyone come together and make it a learning experience. And we feel that's a really important skill that students can learn, especially as they graduate and become lawyers, doctors, accountants, you know, public figures, stuff like that. And that kind of all starts with protecting the speech and, you know, allowing the professor to go out there and say, you know, I may disagree with what this is, but I will defend your right to engage with it and talk about it and have a discussion about it. Yeah, no, that's totally. uh, And I don't know if it's just because where I grew up growing up in Kansas or what, or just having friends that had very different viewpoints than I did. And so always, um, and then I was a community organizer for a long time. So you are forced to engage with folks, obviously, that disagree with you and then finding a common ground or a solution that works for uh, most or everyone. And so generally, I agree, I guess I the where where i'm trying to understand even sort of taking punishment out of it or like complete punishment right we're perhaps not firing the professor or or anything like that but just finding i guess the balance yeah where because like yes if if a professor is just trying to engage in a difficult conversation then you know that makes sense but i think it's also different if um you know if if writing an exam that yeah. A professor might write an exam and they use the N-word just it's a property case and they're trying to, you know, rehash. Uh, 
I don't know why I can never remember the name of this case. Anyway, it's the the case names I have to remember. I never remember case names. I yeah. we have the computer, right? So, <laughs> exactly. Look it up. Uh, but it, it's a it, it has a, a racial covenant. It didn't allow Asians and blacks to move into the neighborhood. And trying to recreate that and on the exam uses racial epithet for Asians and black folks just trying to recreate this the that same case. Is that and would that then be in their interest to have to reproduce the the words specifically and is that protected versus the student's ability to feel safe to use the the word uh, that many students use because there there does have to be a balance and to get the the professor's point across i imagine they could use word less problematic words and still get the exact same point across yeah I, I think professors need some breathing room to to explore the subject area they're trying to teach. Um, and if that if that offends students, you, I think we have to realize that the professor is trying to teach or trying to help the students. The intent isn't to harass or to humiliate anybody. Um, it's to um, advance the course material. And if we're talking about law students, for example, you know, these yep. individuals will be um, theoretically defending rapists, murderers, people who yep. said the N-word perhaps to loved ones to themselves to others um you know we're talking about the, you know the really hard edges of society here yeah. and so i think when it comes to these kind of careers it's even vitally more important that professors do push students out of their comfort zones and and really engage with sometimes the most offensive and, and outrageous subject areas of the law um you know you, you even have personal injury attorneys out there who defend who just practically the most horrific and awful injuries and like you know right really engage that area. And so um, a good point I like to make is that um, academic freedom defends, academic freedom prevents university from imposing certain types of consequences. They can't punish professor's job, for example, um, but they, they're still allowed to condemn the professor to engage in more speech to say, hey, don't do this. Um, you know, we advise you not to do this. We're having, conversa having a conversation about it. Um, social ostracization, for example, has been a huge factor against racist speech in our society. Um, but the First Amendment doesn't allow the government to to punish people, throw them in jail for being racist, right. for example. Right. Um, so I think the limits of academic freedom are really just about the right to the professor's job, that their livelihood would be protected if they're allowed to do this. Um, there's a deeper discussion that you that you mentioned about um, the actual efficiency of it and whether it's helpful. And to me, that's a good way for the university and students to engage the professor and kind of have that more speech approach to this issue. So I guess if the university then comes in in that example and says, well, next year, rewrite your exam and don't include these two words, for example, would that be an unnecessary limitation on their academic freedom? I would say so. Yeah, I would say that that directly interfering with the professor's job responsibilities for writing exams, um, for writing syllabi, for example, yeah. um, would be a friendship on academic freedom. Um, a better approach would be for the supervisor to come in and brainstorm ways that the professor can teach material without making students feel unsafe and uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, a good way we can you can do that is instead of having the full word, you can like abbreviate it. You know, uh, make sure it's you know the full word isn't there. Um, perhaps using a variety of examples that are just the same example over and over again with the racial confidence. Yeah. Um, and just giving the students an option to, you know, to 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 learn in a way that makes them makes them more comfortable. Right. Um, and there's, there's always a conversation with that. But we, we try to always encourage, you know, education and, and not punishment when it comes to these offensive speech issues. That's fair. And, uh, you know, and I, I wonder, you know, at some point, 
like education no longer, I say no longer works, but like at some point it's like the professor has been educated both, you know, even if directly through the university, but also just because they live in the broader society and understand yeah. that certain languages is not acceptable. Um, so I wonder how, like, where does the student play into all of this and sort of if the professor's job, right, and their, their duty, right, is to teach, if you're then creating an environment where a student has a hard time learning because of, you know, very because of offensive language you might use, I guess I wonder, is it not then the university's responsibility to step in in their role as, you know, as the administrator of the sort of educational environment to then, you know, and, and part of their academic freedom, right? Because I forgot, I, yeah. but yesterday I, I spoke with, um, with my Dean of Mission Innovation. And so she was talking about academic freedom from the professor and student side. And so you yeah. come in this third um, leg, if you will, of the academic freedom table <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or stool. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess then how do we then balance the university's interest and in their academic freedom in this, in this sort of situation? Because it seems like at some point, a professor can no longer be further educated um, and say they continue to do it just because they want to. Um, but the university feels like it's at odds with its interest and or the student's interest. Yeah. And it's always a, a fine line. Universities have dual obligations here. They have the obligation to first um, protect free speech and academic freedom per their institutional policies and per the law. And they have a second obligation to ensure a safe learning environment for their students, their professors, everyone involved. Um, this comes into play when it comes to like, you know, violence on campus, you know, right. uh, you know, harassers, true threats. They have it. They have an obligation to ensure that the campus remains free from sexual assault under Title IX, um, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and it, when it comes to to learning and to words and to the teaching, um, I think the First Amendment is a good barometer of how to evaluate these disputes. That if the underlying misconduct here is protected free speech, if it is a professor's teaching, their research, their debate, um, their you know their words. Um, it should remain um, outside the purview of the university to to censor or to punish them for it. Yeah. And and when it comes to students who feel uncomfortable in the classroom for for this offensive speech and for yeah. their teaching and their you know and what the professor is saying, um, there's always going to be um, a a give and take between the student and the professor for how the best curate the students' learning environment. Um, students learn different ways. Right. Um, they you know visual learners or, or learners that perhaps are, are triggered or a bit more screamish when it comes to certain things. Um, however, we, we would advocate, and the First Amendment would also advocate um, for a protection of the underlying speech here, for allowing the professor to continue to learn and continue to teach uh, and students continue to learn, even if the, the expression is offensive, because when you censor the professor's expression, when you tell the professor that they can't use certain words, certain teaching, um, it affects all students and all and really the entire university um because we're, we're we're at a loss for that expression at a loss for that speech and it's it, it's a good point to bear in mind that the freedom of speech is it it ignores to the benefit of minority voices um if you are wealthy and powerful your right to speak is protected by well your wealth and your power right. um so we're talking about you know really um the minority the marginalized here the ideas that are on the fringes of society um that are that are protected by the first amendment yeah. And we feel that these ideas, these viewpoints are um, best debated in the, in the university setting, allowing students to kind of bat them around and see for themselves whether they agree or disagree, um, even if it is unsettling and offensive. 
And, you know, we see a lot of cases where students do feel unsafe uh, based on words. They feel uncomfortable. They don't what they want to get out of there. Yeah. But, I mean, we would argue that uh, the core of a liberal arts education is to have your deepest views challenged. Yeah. It is to, to be questioned about your um, you know, where you came from and kind of expand your worldview, especially if you come from a small town, go to a big university, your right. professors themselves um, kind of have that that sensation. And so, you know, unless there's a, there's a, there's a direct threat to someone's physical safety, um, you know, violence, for example, um, we urge students to to engage with offensive speech, even when it is unsettling and, um, you know, uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, and I will keep sort of, I mean, I'll keep sort of uh, sort of digging at or like poking at this particular point, because like I, yeah. there's no I think there are certainly I was going to say, I think most of us would agree now that I say, you know, you say that out loud, it's like, never mind. Um, there's a lot of people who would probably agree, you know, that if, you know, it is truly a spirited debate about, you know, uh, you know, insert some offensive sort of thought, you know, uh, poor people are poor because they want to be. If you want to have a debate about that, and there's like legitimate debate that can be had about that, mm-hmm. then sure, I th- you know, that makes sense. But I guess I, I still... Like where where it's not um, an offensive thought that is being defended, um, but it's a closely held thought or just a thought somebody had, you know, whatever wherever the the origin of that thought might be. I guess I I'm still trying to needle in on like how specific like specific words and specific language, especially when they're alternatives that that could be used to make the exact same point. And it doesn't, you know, take away from, well, and perhaps it's just a viewpoint, but it doesn't seem it would take away from the learning environment if the professor came, you know, didn't use, insert any racial uh, epithet here. Yeah. So I guess I'm trying to needle in on why, how that, or why that shouldn't be limited if it takes away from the environment from anyone in the room and doesn't really add the environment for anyone else in the room. Yeah. And that's a great point because it goes back to what we said about in the very beginning when we started talking about this, how academic freedom protects professors because they are the experts, they're the expert educators of the university, they're professional educators, they're teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, decisions about pedagogical issues should be done by the professor um you can talk anything from geometry academic literature to like african-american yeah. literature to right. um islamic art um the professors the university hires are the authorities on those issues and the administrators um no offense to them um they're not academics right their job is from the ed- educational institution not necessarily to instruct professors who have phds and everyone books about that on um, what is or is not islamic art for example sure. um so the, the the question of what material to use and how to use it, that is best left up to the professor because they would know um, how best to teach their students, how best to engage with them. And when you have administrators stepping in and telling professors that, hey, you can't use these certain words, certain materials, um, this is how it should be done, and that's the end of it. Um, that really degrades the the quality of economic discourse on campus because then you have an, an orthodoxy, you have administrators and upon professors um what is the the right way the right view the right viewpoints that they should be um putting forth and so i think the the question of you know what makes students uncomfortable and how to address offensive subject matter material um is a good question it's definitely something that i don't don't have an answer to for specific genres like yeah the n-word or with offensive photographs or pictures 
But I think when it comes to how do you make those decisions, um, it should be the first voice we should listen to here is that of the professor who is teaching the students in the room. Interesting. So I, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I, I not don't want to put words in your mouth. So you, the, so the professor's academic freedom is sort of superior to the other answer. Well, I guess in this case, they would be ancillary rights of whether the, the university or the students ability to learn or right to learn. Well, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe perhaps, I guess this is a question. Uh, is a, a student at a university, do they have like the, the, a right to learn generally? Do, does that make sense? I, it sort of was yeah. a random question. That just yeah, I, I think the, yeah, the, they all have academic freedom rights as long as they don't yeah. conflict with other rights. Um, but a student does not have the right to shut down a professor's um, teaching the administration has the right to shut down professors uh, teaching, for example, um, you know, for for offensive material. Yeah. And so I think it's really a matter of 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 respecting the decision of the professor. So, for example, a professor can say professor can create an exam that uses the N word in full unredacted. They can also make the decision to not do that. Yeah. And the decision both ways is protective academic freedom. And that gives students the variety that have the choice, they have the chance to, to have a variety of perspectives. They can have, they can take the professor who wants to do that, professor who doesn't want to do it. They can kind of have have it whatever way they want to do it. Um, but students are are um, expected to learn and to you know expand their worldview and to understand offensive material. And it's a good skill to have. And I think yeah, um, professors will have that right under academic freedom to, to kind of teach subject matter material in the way they see fit. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is, that is fair. Uh, or that makes sense. I keep saying that is fair. That no, I got you. <laughs> no, that certainly makes sense. In, in the conception of academic freedom is that sort of, if it was a hierarchy, it'd certainly be, it would have the professor at the top and then would then the university or the student be sort of at, at the same then level, or is there even a, a further hierarchical structure between those two? I'll say it's all a matter of balance. Yeah. Because like I said, if the, if the professor is teaching things that are just flat out wrong, then two equals five, university can step in and fire that professor. Yeah. Um, so it's definitely a matter of balance between the rights. Um, and it gets difficult when the rights conflict, when they overlap with one another. Um, but that's the basic structures that universities determine, you know, who teaches, you know, and um, you know, who's who's able to learn and kind of they can set the standards there. Professors implement the material and students are there to learn and to, and to express themselves. Sometimes they're, they're disagreeing with the material. Yeah. Um, so it's all just a matter of facilitating discourse and education within the institution. Okay. And then, and, and sorry, cause I know we're running uh, sort of low on time and I don't want to monopolize your afternoon. Oh, you're good. We've now established, right. That the professors they have this strong sort of protection of academic freedom, particularly where it um, relates to their academic interest, whether your organization or as you argue in court, where then do you find the line just in determining their academic interest? Is it everything that happens in the classroom or are, is there a line that you can draw that says, okay, this is no longer within your academic interest? Yeah, I think it, you have to go back to the professor's job description. Um, if they are a librarian, it'll be that their academic interest lies in making sure the library is well curated. If they're a lecturer, it's their teaching in class, teaching students, you know, what they're saying. If they're a researcher, it's their research, yeah. um, their, their data, their, their writings like that. Um, and some professors are experts in the subject matter. They speak to media. Um, so their ability to speak 
especially the area of expertise um, and their individual capacities that would be protected. Um, but generally, most professors out there, it's the core um, teaching, research, and um, and expression. Doing all that within the academic classroom, the they're, they're, they're on the job, for example, when they have their uniforms on in class, that's kind of when their protection is at its zenith, its, its height. Um, but professors are, um, you know, on social media, if they're speaking on behalf of the university, if they are um, engaging in expression, that's not really personal to their job responsibilities, just, you know, out there as a human being yeah. uh, in the world. Um, that would not be, I would say, under their academic freedom. Right. Um, it may be protected as a private citizen, right. as just general First Amendment right. Um, but really, it's just about uh, their core job responsibilities. That's fair. So, if, and along that vein, if a if a student, if a professor were to post on Twitter something that, that and from their personal account and not in relation to to their job, but just like something, some hate speech, right? I, that, yeah. that would clearly be hate speech. The the university still couldn't, or would the university still? Would it be y'all's position that the university still couldn't punish the professor for that speech? It's that's a bit of a it's a bit of a different question. Yeah. Um, it may not be like academic freedom per se, right? But yeah, um, takes it outside the realm of academic freedom. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. But it, there are many reasons why it could still still be protected, where universities yeah. still not be able to punish them. Um, public employees, for example, student of professors. Um, they retain the right to speak as private citizens and that is a public concern. Um, so if somebody is professors out there criticizing Trump on Facebook, if they're uh, if they're out criticizing Trump on Facebook, you know, they have the right to political speech to speak right. out against the government as citizens. The university um, can't punish them unless that speech um, causes a, a severe disruption to the university educational functions. So uh, if a professor said that, you know, I can't stand teaching black people. They're the worst. I gave them all lower grades. Yeah. There was a step in and say, look, this affects your job responsibilities. If you're giving people different grades based on their race, yeah. I'll punish you for that because that's disruptive. That's yeah. that would impede the work environment. But the standard is that as long as it's not disruptive, as long as it's spoken on the, in their private capacity and on behalf of the university, um, it would protect under, the, under general First Amendment standards. Gotcha. And is there, I mean, I guess there is an argument to be made, but I, we as people don't exist in in a vacuum within any facet of our life. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, show on Apple TV called Severance. Um, no, I'm not, I haven't heard of it. Is there, it good? It, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's, I think it's pretty good. Um, it, the, there's a folks that work on a particular floor of some, you know, large company, but they've severed their work personality and they're out out of work personality or their private personality. So like when you're not at work, you don't, you don't, you don't know what's going on at work. You don't know who you work with. Um, and then when you get to work, you don't remember anything about your outside life. Um, yeah. And yeah. so, you know, obviously that's not our real existence. And so like the, this, like a hate speech on Twitter or just out there, um, even, or you're just at a conference, but you're there as a private citizen and not in, capacity as as a professor yeah uh, and you say something that is deeply offensive to someone can that not still affect your job as a professor because you're teaching students who you might have a negative view of say you don't say somebody makes a very anti-trans comment for example mm -hmm. and you, if you're teaching trans students will that not affect your ability to do your job inherent just because now you know I can't imagine I would trust a professor if they had anti-black views, for example, as a black man, 
whether they said it privately or whatever. So well, does that affect the academic environment, even if it's said outside of the academic space? Yeah, if professors has something that that's so offensive that it really calls into question their ability to do their job, um, yeah. they have an issue teaching trans students or have an issue um, really teaching students of any race or gender ethnicity, um, that would be an issue the university can investigate and kind of find out, hey, is the professor teaching, is the professor giving students lower grades because of their race or, or their, their gender? Um, but it's a fine line between that and universities being opposed to professors for their viewpoints. Um, yeah, that makes sense. If, if there's like, it's, it's hard to kind of tease it out sometimes. A lot of the times we see university punishing professors for um, their political advocacy, sometimes for criticizing the university, um, which is obviously you can do, you can criticize your own school. Um, right. It's definitely able to do so. So it's definitely a fine line there, um, especially when the speech is extremely hateful, extremely racist. Right. Um, and you know, we, we try to value whether the speech is political, who is who, who is the presser talking to, um, was it a general audience, was it a specific individual, yeah. um, was there, um, you know, like a legitimate reason why the presser was saying that within a debate about this kind of thing, and that kind of was playing devil's advocate. So it's really just a matter of drilling down um, the context of the speech and yeah. whether it would be disruptive to the educational environment. Okay. And if, and, and sorry, I, I know I asked you a question that I keep asking like several follow-up questions. On no, that. please do. I'm happy to answer them. If we did with your hypothetical, say we took out the second part where it was like, uh, I give them lower grades or whatever. It's just, I hate black people or I hate, you know, Mexicans or uh, I hate trans folks, uh, or I don't think they're real or whatever. Right. Something that's just a statement of their view, but it's not, you know, they don't connect it to their work and that, I give them lower grades or something like that. Yeah. Where in the spectrum of speech does that fall? And can the university step in and say something to them? I would say if the comment was made and it was a serious comment, it wasn't in jest, it was made as like, a, you know, this is what I believe and I will do this. Yeah. Um, the university would be justified in launching an investigation into the professor to uncover evidence of discrimination. And if there's no evidence, if the professor just saying that and they, in fact, do actually treat people all the same, you know, if, if there's no actual discrimination, if there's just just the words. Yeah. Um, I think the university would be the, the university would have to protect just the words, just just a, just a straight up, you know, the professor yeah. expression. He's expressing a viewpoint or yeah. a, a political viewpoint, perhaps one that's, that's really, you know, distasteful and hateful, but still a political viewpoint um, out there. If he said, you know, I hate all Trump supporters. Right. Um kind of the same it's kind of a, a similar um calculus there we have to see oh this professor giving republicans lower grades you know is this professor not allowing republicans to participate in class um yeah yours would be justified though in at least figuring out what this means and what's happening here and normally we would condemn investigations into protected speech but when the protected speech is 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 um could pro is a indica of you know, unlawful discrimination and unlawful harassment, then I think at least a preliminary meeting professor would be in order. Yeah, got it. That uh, makes sense. It's really, and again, I, just trying to narrow in on where where those lines are, right? Because again, the understanding as a general concept that speech is protected, and then of course, like um, you know, as you're pursuing your academic interests as a professor, it is 
protected and just trying to understand both and both because I am a student, but also because I in the, within the context I've only ever seen it used is because a student was made to feel a certain way in a classroom for a variety of reasons. And seeing where the student interest comes into this idea and this conversation of academic freedom. And it seems that for the most part, the professors, the professor's academic freedom will tend to trump all uh, sort of other interests unless they, you know, very obviously step over the, the line. Yeah, yeah. Professor's academic freedom is, is a very powerful interest. And unless there's illegal con- legal conduct here, unprotected expression, um, or just, you know, general academic malfeasance, like yeah. I can't put two sentences together or just, <laughs> um, then yeah, it's, we, we would argue that universities should give professors a wide berth, you know, extensive breathing room to, to do their jobs. Yeah, no, that is fair. Well, there I go again. Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, this has uh, been a, a very insightful and very enjoyable. I always enjoy just talking to folks and getting to uh, learn more about people, but also just like organizations and things that I haven't hadn't previously known about. No, we appreciate you reaching out and for scheduling the interview. And I always enjoy talking about this and I appreciate you getting both sides, you know, me and the Dean, I'm sure we have some disagreements. That's all from us here at the Povicate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepovicate at gmail.com. Visit our website, thepovicate.com for more information on this episode and our guest. The Povicate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palowitz. Our associate editors are Neko Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make the show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Povicate.